25 together if you want to follow with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. I want to come back to Matthew chapter 1 again this morning and sort of add some meat to the bones from last week. So we're, we're going to get into some details in verses 18 and following. We're going to go back to verses 1 through 17 to pick up some thoughts. But I want to come back and look at it more now that we have a little bit of clarity of what Matthew is trying to accomplish with the beginning of his gospel. But I start with realizing the nature of the times in which we live. So I turn on the news a few days back, and this is the statement I hear. Cambridge Dean defends fellow who suggested that Jesus had a trans body. This is the nature of the times in which we live. This is nothing unusual for us to see culture impose itself upon the Christian faith, but coming out of Cambridge, of all places. But it's interesting because it caused me to think, oftentimes we do this, we impose upon Christ things that we think that ought to be about Him, we try to compress him into our mold and the way that we want to see him and view him. So this morning I wanted to look at Matthew's gospel because there's always been this tension that has gone on in the church. There's always been in early years of church history we've seen we're leaning more towards the deity of Christ to the exclusion of the humanity of Christ. And many false teachings then arose out of that. But what we find in our day and age is more focus on the humanity of Christ that we forget the deity of Christ. And I want to make sure that we maintain the balance of both. So this morning we're going to look at things like the hypostatic union, although we're not going to use that word all the way through here. The theanthropic man, the God-man Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and fully man. And this is the Savior that we serve. And I remember this statement by Comfort and Holly in their work on the New Testament Gospels. They said, we must believe in Jesus as Jesus, the Son of God. We must be careful to believe in Him according to the biblical presentation of His person, not according to our own concepts. We have a tendency to do this. It's interesting, I've seen a series of commercials that have been out for a while now. Jesus gets us. This is the tagline that comes at the end of every commercial. Jesus gets us. So my wife calls me in because she stops this commercial to show me what it was saying. And it was talking about anxiety. Jesus also struggled with anxiety. And then the tagline at the end, Jesus gets us. i got a problem with that. According to Scripture, anxiety is sin. Therefore, what you're telling me is that Jesus sinned. That is impossible biblically. But these are the concepts that are out there. 
And people in the church are going to buy into these things. And absolutely, Jesus gets us. He is the sympathetic high priest. But He is fully God and fully man in perfection. No sin whatsoever. And therefore, if we are going to understand Jesus Christ, we need to understand Him as Scripture defines Him and lays out for us. And some today, they believe that He is a great teacher, He's a great moralist, a humanitarian, but they don't see Him as the reconciler to God. They don't see Him as the Son of God. And many of those times, they believed in Jesus' ability to perform miracles, but they didn't believe in Jesus Himself, namely that He was the Son of God. They liked Him for the miracles. They liked the fact that He was the coming Messiah, and they saw in Him the fulfillment of the expectations that they had for the Messiah. But then when He began to defy their preconceived notions, they had a problem with Him. Remember Peter? And Jesus having to say to him, Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter had a tr problem with the kind of messiahship that Jesus was declaring before him. That he must be rejected, that he must suffer, that he must die. You gotta imagine Peter's thinking, I've given up family and, and work and I've walked away from occupation to follow you for three years and now you're gonna tell me you're gonna die and not set up the kingdom now? So we all wrestle with these things, but we need to understand as Matthew lays out for us that he is true Israelite, he is the son of Abraham. He is true man. He is the son of Adam. He is true divine man. He is the son of God. And he is true king. He is the son of David. And we are calling upon the world to come and bow their knee before King Jesus. That is our task as the church. So we must know then who we are calling them to bow before. And so Matthew is going to lay out for us as we add some meat to the bones we looked at last week in the genealogy is that we are looking at the nativity of our king. And Matthew is going to take us on this journey, but he wants us to understand the history of human salvation. It concentrates on the coming of Christ. This was the central port. And for Matthew, it's interesting because if you look in verses 18 and following, he will begin this pattern of talking about the fulfillment of prophecy. In other words, that God's plan is being worked out in time and space. All of these prophecies that were given in the Old Testament are now coming to fulfillment. And this is Matthew's theme as he starts off in chapter 1 at the end there as he appeals to Isaiah the prophet declaring that through a virgin was going to come this child. She'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this begins a series of statements that he walks through this section of the fulfillment of Scripture. We see that Christ is a central point to all that God is doing. So we understand from Matthew's gospel, then as he begins this gospel for us, is that the incarnation of Christ was the coming into view of the divine basis for everything that exists. As Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that everything was created in Him, through Him, and for Him. Everything was for His glory. Everything is moving towards that end. Everything that happens in this world is to bring Christ's glory in the end. That is the ultimate consummation of everything. Everything in history leading up to the time of the coming of Christ and leading away from the time of Christ. This was the pivotal point. Therefore, we see that the Lord of history has now entered into history and everything forever, this time from the manger to the grave or to the cross, is going to be, if you will, it is of all times the turning point. It is of all love the highest point. It is of all salvation the starting point. It is of all worship the central point. Matthew wants us to understand that everything that God declared is coming to fulfillment. It is in the person of Jesus Christ and He is the King. So therefore, Matthew in this prologue is going to lay out for us the advent of the king. We're going to see in the first chapter, we're going to see the, the 
lineage of Christ and then the birth of Christ. And then in chapter 2, we're going to see the homage paid to the king by the visiting of the Magi. And so Matthew begins this journey for us, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, the advent of the king. And we're going to go back and pick up some thoughts here that we saw this last time. But Matthew begins for us, if you will, the central theme and character. It is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. And everything that was reflected in the Old Testament. All the prophecies, the great covenants that were established in Jewish history, all were connected to Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment. And if he is going to fulfill this, then does he come from the rightful line? And therefore, Matthew is going to lay out the lineage of Christ. No doubt the question that would come from the Jews is, does he come from the lineage of David? And therefore, this is what Matthew is going to do for us as he lays this out. He's going to give us the human heredity of, Matt, of Jesus Christ and then his divine heredity in verses 18 through 25. He prepares us for this, though, in verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. This prepares us for verses 18 through 25 as he talks about his heredity as far as divinity. But we begin with looking at his heredity in regards to his humanity, verses 1 through 17. The humanity of Christ we find from Matthew's gospel that it is just as important as the deity. Both of them are laid out here. Go to the beginning of Romans. Paul establishes the same truth. The reality of his humanity, the reality of his deity. We find this also again in 1 John as he highlights this. But we understand that for him to pay the ultimate price for fallen humanity, for him to come and identify with us, he must be fully man. But he must be sinful, man, if he's going to pay the price for fallen humanity. I find it interesting the way that there is such a focus, especially in this day and age, on the humanity of Christ. That somehow he needs to be more accessible. That somehow he needs to be more tangible. How tangible can you get the fact that he come and took on human nature? And he walked as man among men. There's nothing more tangible needed than that. And we are reminded by 1 John as we look through 1 John, his first letter as he dispels the doctrinal error of denying the true humanity of Christ. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So if you hear a teacher who is proclaiming the fact that he is not God in flesh, then he is declaring error and therefore you know that it is a false spirit. So we know from Matthew's gospel, he helps us to understand that the incomprehensible has come to pass. This is a mysterious truth that we cannot fully understand. Fully God, fully man, and one person. So we understand that when we look at the, the, the coming of Christ, we're looking at a miracle. Christianity is based on a miracle. It is a wondrous miracle. But we cannot compromise this message before the world. And we can't compromise it to reach out to the world. Because every time we do this and we compromise the message, we then have no message for the world. We have nothing that answers to their sin. We have nothing that answers to their guilt. We have nothing that answers to the misery and the joylessness and the peacelessness and the lovelessness of their life as a result of the sin in their life. If we compromise the message of Christ, we compromise anything that we could offer to this world. But we find that he leaves the free, unconditional, world-ruling absoluteness of the divine, and the Son entered into limits of time and space as a creature among creatures. The creator of all things came down to walk among his creation, and yet they knew him not. And his own people rejected him. 
when he offered himself to them. The incarnation, we understand this to mean that it is the eternal Son of God who took to himself an additional nature, humanity through the virgin birth. And this results in the fact that Christ is unblemished deity, but also possesses true sinless humanity in one person forever. This is a thought that has just so boggled my mind. And I can't help but when we, we sing that song, the second to the last, right? How many kings, right, have left their throne? That song always breaks me up with it. The realization that Christ took on human nature, but he will always and forever be that way. I mean, just think of this. When he left heaven and came down here to take on human nature, that will never change. He rose again, right? In resurrection form. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He will forever be the God-man, but He did that for you and I. How amazing is that truth? And He will remain so forever. The first time I realized that just blew my mind. I mean, I've grown up in church. I've read the Bible for years and years. That all of a sudden the realization is that He will stay like this forever. But He did that for you and I. We need not make him any more tangible than he already is. But the realization of the fact that he must remain this way so that he can complete his work of salvation and that he can preserve it. As the angel told Mary, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. He will forever be the God-man. The virgin birth is going to make this possible by uniting the deity and the humanity in one person forever. And this is what Matthew is going to highlight for us in verses 18 and following. Joseph, when he finds out that she is with child, the angel comes to him at night and tells him that this child is of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, he should not be afraid, verse 20, to take Mary as his wife. Can you imagine the news but the realization of the fact that Mary has already had the encounter with the angel Gabriel. And in light of this passage, we then understand that she did not tell Joseph about the angel coming to her. Isn't that interesting? That it was God himself that comes to tell Joseph. In light of the realization that she is now with child and it's not my child, we have not, right? But his response is what blows my mind is the fact that immediately he was obedient to the word of the Lord and did as he was told. But the news comes that this virgin is going to bear forth this child and it is an affirmation not only of the incarnation of Christ but also the affirmation of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Now Luke will bear this out more clearly for us but we understand, behold, this is Isaiah's prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And thus Joseph, on instruction from the angel, remains to keep her as his wife, but also the fact that he keeps her as a virgin, verse 23, until she gives birth to a son, and then they name him Jesus as he is told. 
I find it interesting because, you know, we talked about this last week, but in Luke's gospel, there's more of a focus on Mary, but here there's more of a focus on Joseph. And every time we see Joseph encountered by word from God to do something, Joseph immediately gets up and does it. It speaks a lot about his character, doesn't it? The fact that he is so obedient to God, but not only that, that he trusts God. So they're going to flee down into Egypt, but how is everything going to be provided for? We're not told that God tells him any of that. Like God doesn't fill in all of the blanks for him. As far as we know, Joseph just gets up and goes. He does what he's told. Therefore, he's obedient to God, but he also trusts God. He trusts that God is going to make provisions. He has a wife to care for and now a child to care for. And obviously this child is not an ordinary child. And therefore, I have to care for this child. But he just does what God tells him to do. So I find it very interesting in regards to my own life. We'll come back and talk about this a little bit more next week. But the realization of, am I as obedient as the Lord reveals His will and the Word of God to me? Do I respond with such obedience as Joseph did? And do I respond with such trust? If God moves me, do I trust that God is going to provide every step of the way? Now it's interesting because in verse 16, we've seen twice that the reference to the fact that she is a virgin, not only from the prophecy that came from Isaiah, but also the statement of the fact that, that J, Joseph kept her so until after she gave birth to Jesus and then they named him. But there's a transition that happens in verse 16. I mentioned this earlier. Verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Now there's a transition that happens here, beginning in chapter 1, verse 2. We have the reference to Abraham was the father of Isaac. Literally as Abraham begot Isaac. And this is in the aorist tense, it's active. In other words, it's focusing on the father siring the children. But in verse 16, there's a transition from the active to the passive. And we have reference to the fact that he was born. In other words, there's this deliberate transition that happens as we go down from Abraham to Isaac and all the way down through this line. We have begat, 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 or fathered, fathered, fathered. And all of a sudden, we get to verse 16. We have the reference to was born. There is clear distinction that is being made that's emphasizing the contrast between these men who sired their sons and the fact that Joseph was not the one who begot Jesus. There's a break in the pattern. Not only that, but in verse 16, we have this statement, whom Jesus was born, by whom. This is feminine relative pronoun, of whom, or out of whom, literally. In other words, it's focusing on Mary, so it's identifying the fact that clearly Jesus is the physical child of Mary, but not of Joseph. In other words, this was a miraculous birth, and therefore the explanation comes in verses 18 through 25. How did this happen? Now I find this so interesting that Matthew highlights this. Because for me, all of a sudden, I realize how much more Joseph did in this interaction with the angel. Because he not only didn't put Mary away, which when you think about it, so they were engaged to be married, but their engagement is not like our engagement, right? So we might use the word betrothed to give it a little bit of a different nuance. But when they were engaged, it was for a one-year period. It was just as binding as if they were actually married. So for a one-year period to this period of engagement, she would live with her parents and, and Joseph would live in his own home. 
But at the end of this year, then he would go get her from her parents' home and this long entourage, and he would come and usher her to his home. And there they would be husband and wife, and they would consummate the marriage. So in this time period then, this is a time for testing of purity. So now comes the realization that Mary is with child. Joseph obviously loves her and cares for her because he doesn't want to make it public. He doesn't go to the judges at the city gates to declare the fact that she has with child and therefore they would have stoned her to death. He decides he wants to put her away quietly. This now is when the angel comes to him and says, don't do this. This is of God. So the statement then that comes after the pronouncement of this that Joseph is going to keep her and he is not going to turn her away. He's not going to end the marriage. He's not going to file for divorce, right? He's not going to do this, but he is going to take her as his wife. But not only that, he is also going to accept this child as his own. He now then, because of that, is truly of the line of David. It is as if someone adopted a son, brought him into the family, and gave them full rights as heir, along with every other child that is begotten of the family. It's an amazing statement in regards to Joseph and his response to all of this. But Matthew sets us up for this as he walks through this, especially in verse 16, as he provides the transition that Joseph was still going to take Mary as his wife, but also that he is going to take responsibility for this son. So then comes the divine heredity, if you will, in verses 18 through 25. And there is the conception and then the explanation that comes in verses 18 through 23. And it's in this explanation that the angel is going to reveal to Joseph that you shall call his name Jesus, verse 21. And then he is going to give fuller explanation as to why he is going to name him Jesus. Because he is going to save his people from their sins. All of these things weren't hitting them all at the same time. I mean, you think about the process that they have to go through. We know from Luke's gospel that these things as they went on, that Mary continued to ponder these things in her heart, trying to understand everything that God is doing. They didn't have all the blanks filled in for them. And yet they're willing to trust God. And you think about not only for Mary's sake, right, and, and the looks that she is going to get in that year period before they actually consummate the marriage and can do so, the, the, the way that she is going to be ostracized by the people in the village and those around her, family members and everything else. But what about Joseph? Can you imagine all the gossip at the well when everyone goes to water their animals in the morning and the things that they're saying about Joseph and the fact that he has this wife who is now pregnant? <laughs> and they haven't even finished the process yet? And then the angel says to him, and you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because he is going to save his people from their sins. Can you imagine receiving that news? <laughs> What kind of child is this, right? This is the question we ask. The first thing that we understand from this declaration of his name is the humiliation that is going to come. 
the realization of the fact that Jesus' suffering didn't start when he was mocked, ridiculed, rejected, and beaten, and then crucified. His suffering began when he took on human nature. He took on human flesh, the child in the womb, grew and developed, as Luke tells us, grew and developed like every other human being, right? Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all of that. And every stage perfect. And yet he still developed like we did. His humiliation began at the very beginning. This name Jesus, I mean, we, we know we associate it with him as Christ, but you have to understand that this was a common name. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Yeshua, Joshua. We find others in the New Testament, right? Colossians, his name is Justice, also known as Jesus. There were others who had this name. This was a name of humiliation until the explanation comes that he is going to also be Savior. He will save his people from their sins. He's not going to be an ordinary child. Now one might think of this statement that he will save his people from their sins, that this is only pertaining to the nation of Israel. And if we look at the context in which it's given, we might think that that's the end of it. But there's some things that we can understand about this salvific work of Christ. First, the exclusiveness of this salvation. Notice this in verse 21. Now, you won't see it in your English translations, but I'll tell you in the Greek, it literally should be translated this way. For He and He alone will be the Savior. He and no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven, right? By which we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. There is no one else who can save us. There is an exclusiveness to His salvation. Jesus made this clear. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not only that, but we see then the limit of His salvation. It is for His people, verse 21. Now what's interesting about Matthew's Gospel is that we begin to see this development of the theme of the Gentiles that runs through the Gospel. And what's intriguing to me is that we all know the end, the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations. But what's interesting is that if you read the Gospel as a whole, you will see a number of times where Christ will say, do not go to the Gentiles, but go to the house of Israel. Do not go to the Gentiles, but go to the lost sheep of Israel. And then all of a sudden he gets to the end of the book and he declares that all authority and power has been given to me. Now go make disciples of all the nations. Hallelujah, we're included. <laughs> but it's an amazing journey that Matthew is going to take his readers on. But now we know. The limit of his salvation, it is a message we take to the world, right? Right? And what's interesting to me is I realized this going through Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel years ago and getting to verse 28, our chapter 28, and the inverses in the Great Commission. The thing that I realized was the fact that the reason that evangelism exists is because worship does not exist. You have this statement by Jesus to Satan, go away from me, Satan, right, during the temptation. You shall worship and serve the Lord your God only. Then in Matthew 28, we see them fall down and worship Jesus, and He accepts the worship, which tells us His deity, right? He alone can receive the worship. 
And when we go out into the world, what are we declaring to the world? We are calling them to come and to bow the knee before King Jesus and to surrender their life to Him. This is what we are doing when we make disciples of all the nations. In Philippians, Paul tells us in chapter 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I realized, young in my walk, used to think that evangelism was the key ministry of the church. But then I realized, no, it's not. The key ministry of the church is worship. And worship doesn't exist amongst the unbelievers, and therefore we evangelize the world. Therefore, evangelism exists because worship does not exist. And then I realized that not only is this true with evangelism, but it's also true of edification. Because Jesus tells them, make disciples of all the nations, and I want you to teach them all that I have commanded you. Surrender your will to my. This is evangelism. This is what we do. We are calling the world to come and worship King Jesus. The question is, are we worshiping the true King Jesus? Do we know who it is that we are declaring? Some are very confused on this, and we need to help them understand the truth. Amen? The depth and breadth of his salvation from their sins. Literally, verse 21, he says this. In other words, it is not only to redeem from the consequences of sin, of condemnation and judgment, but from the sins themselves, from their bondage, from their lordship, from their power over your life, that he can set you free. That is the message. I was sharing with the kids on Friday night that there was a, a sister in the church down in California years and years ago, and she witnessed to everybody all the time. Didn't matter where she was, work, whatever. She was telling people about Jesus Christ. And she was sharing a story one time when she was driving down the road coming off of work and she saw this police car pulled over on the side of the road and she saw this car there and there were two men sitting on the curb and they were handcuffed. And so she pulled over to the side of the road and she walked up to the police officer and she said, do you mind if I sit down and share the gospel with these young men? They said, no, go ahead. These were two gangbangers that were being hauled away to jail and she sat down next to him and she says, can I tell you about the person who can set you free? Can I tell you about the one who died for your sins? and can deliver you from the bondage of your sin and from the sin of your life. And that's Jesus Christ. This is the message that we have. This is the reason we celebrate. This is the miracle, right, that we rejoice in. And Christmas was a time of celebration. Read Luke's Gospel. Four amazing hymns at the beginning of the Gospel. It was a time for celebration. It still is a time for celebration. But not just for one day or one month. It is for every day of our life. He is the source then of our justification, but He's also the source of our sanctification. The birth then comes in verses 24 and 25. Joseph awoke, and he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. The birth that altered all of history. It's an amazing truth. When God came to rescue us, He didn't come riding on a white horse in armor. But he came in the arms of those he came to save. Can you imagine holding this child, the God-man, the Savior of the world? The ones that he came to save are holding him swaddled in their arms? The God who made and rules and upholds the world is the one who came down into the world. 
Not as the highest, the strongest, the most powerful as we sung, but the smallest, the weakest, and the most obscure. We think about the mysteriousness and the miraculousness of this. Just ponder this. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, all in a small seven or eight pound package. Can you imagine? Does he need to be any more tangible for us? Do we need to accommodate him to minister to the world? Do we need to diminish who he is to become more impactful in a sinful and dying world? The answer is no. No, not at all. We just need to understand the miraculous birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, that he is our King, and it's to him that we bow our knees. Dad, would you close